explained more adequately to him the way of Jesus. So, no, no, there's one before then. Oh, never mind. Okay, so anyway. And so, and so then we come to Acts 19. So let's read it through. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Notice that they were already believers. Uh, they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism for repentance from sin. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were ten men in all. By the way, I'm going to do a little aside here. There's a bunch of people out there today who are saying that you're not baptised properly unless you're baptised in the name of Jesus because it occurs three times in the book of Acts. Now that is rubbish because the reason that they did that then is because back in those days every Tom, Dick and Harry was baptising people. These days only Christians baptise, right? But back then the Essenes were baptising and there was John's baptism and Apollos' baptism and so on and so forth. So it simply identifies that it's the baptism of Jesus uh, and, and, and why wouldn't we obey Jesus' last words? Baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So, so I don't know what words are used, but it's not about a formula. The fact is they were baptised into Christ, see? So there you have four foundations, if I can just deal with them. The first is repentance from sin. The second is belief or faith. In the Greek, by the way, the word pistis, uh, means the sa- it's the same word. Belief is our believing, is our verb, and faith is our noun. They're the same word in the Greek. So, so there's confession and repentance from sin, and then there's faith. Now, those two cylinders, if I can put it that way, those two things are your salvation. That's what you need to have to be saved. And the next two he talks about is what God needs so that we might be effective as believers. Water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Last week, Pastor Scott talked about the fact that I know this to be true. I totally agree with you. When I come to a roundabout, all the other bad drivers in Brisbane arrive at the same time. So it's profoundly important that they call upon the fact that I've been baptised. Most churches in the world do not understand what the Bible teaches about baptism, and I'm not going there today. Peter says, baptism now saves you by giving you a clear conscience. Baptism is a now thing. And so when I get to that roundabout and my blood pressure is 130 over 80, right? When I come out the other side of that roundabout, it will be 130 over 80 because I've been buried with Christ in his death. I've been down into the waters of baptism. Satan has no more power over me, see? So we need to use our baptism. I've gone, I've gone up the garden path again, so just, but just remember that. So the normal Christian life from Paul's perspective was those four things. Confession, repentance, and faith, or we say from sin after repentance by grace through faith, and then your water baptism to claim every day of your life, and then baptism in the Holy Spirit, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Now notice... 
in that passage also that Paul talks about John the Baptist, the last prophet, right? Now, you would think that what the last prophet would say about Jesus could be one of, if not the most important thing. And what did he say? He said, he will baptize you. We're behind, guys. He is the one who will baptize you. Sorry? Oh, all right. Okay, so John the Baptist said, he is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what the last prophet said about Jesus. And then in in Matthew and Luke it says, and with fire, and the fire analogy that we use as a church came from my thoughts about that over 30 years ago. Notice also that Jesus in his life did a couple of interesting things. At one stage he sent out 12 people and then later 72. What did he send them out to do? He sent them out, if I can just summarise what he sent them out to do, he sent them out to heal the sick, cast out demons and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he did. In other words, the same things he did is the same things he told them to do then. And then on the last night he was trained, he said to them, truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I'm doing. He will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Notice that about being raised up to go to be with the Father because that's really important in this. And then at his ascension, the last thing he says to his disciples at his ascension is this, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my Father promised which you've heard me speak about for John baptised with water but in a few days you will be baptised in the Holy Spirit. In other words, his last uh, uh, instructions to them were, it's coming, it's coming, get ready, it's coming. And then he gave them this instruction, and I, again, Acts 1.8 is a scripture that we've used so, uh, so much in our church because of who we are. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we as a church have tried to do. Joan and I will be off to India in January. And uh, I count that to be the most extraordinary privilege to be able to go to a, a Bible college in India and teach about the things of God, just as Paul did in Ephesus for two years. Um, now then on the day of Pentecost, of course, 10 days later, the day of Pentecost came. And we read that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in unknown tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit fell on them. They spoke in unknown tongues. And the reason I've translated it that way is because that's what the Greek says. In the Greek, it is heteros glossolei, which is, means different. If you look up your vines and what have you, you'll find that it means completely different. Uh, in, if it was alos glossolei, it would be known languages on earth, but it wasn't. It was heteros. And the miracle on that day of Pentecost was in hearing. The verb is hearing. The participle is speaking. You know, we heard them speaking in our own language. And so 
And so this amazing thing happened for this 120 people that were just filled with the Holy Spirit. And I could say to you that that actually is the birth of the Pentecostal church on that day, which we are. We are a Pentecostal church because we believe in baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you go on in Acts 2.41, you see what happened as a result of Peter preaching. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number that day. Extraordinary day it was, from 120 to 3,000 in one day, which was amazing. And then we have a picture of what the early church, Pentecostal church, looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and to prayer, which is what we all do, I hope, in our life groups. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give anyone uh, to had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that is the New Testament church, and that is what we uh, long to be like. We want to be exactly like that, don't we? Who does? How many of us want to be like that Pentecostal church there in the book of Acts? So we're still in the era of the Spirit. Some say we're not, and we are still in the apostolic age. So now I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, to 14 because this is where the idea of the fire analogy comes from it's uh it was 30 years ago that i began to think about a baptism of fire that john the baptist told us uh, we would receive and it's from this that we developed this model of the fire fire needs fuel heat and air is justin here and something else i don't know what the name of that whatever it is we'll get it in the book when we get to it right but for the moment, fuel, heat, and air we need, and we need to be fired up, fueled up, and filled up, and I'll come to that, those, uh, tease that out a little bit more in a moment. But Paul is speaking in these three chapters of the work of the Holy Spirit in a Pentecostal church. Um, and so I want to look at the first and last verses. I remind you that in the original Greek, there weren't any chapters and verses, but these Chapters and verses fall beautifully exactly where it would be nice for them to fit when we're talking about this extraordinary thought about the importance of fruit and gift operating together. So 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 says this, Now concerning supernatural gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. The word there is pneumaticone. It's found only in these, these couple of verses. Um, and... Uh, not found anywhere else except in Romans chapter 1 verse 11 where Paul uses that word in conjunction with the New Testament word for gift which is charismata. So he says, I want to come to you and I want to give you a pneumaticone charismata which is a supernatural gift. I want to lay hands on you and give you all a supernatural gift. That's the only place he uses it, Romans 1 11. But here in, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, concerning the supernatural. Now, your Bible may have spiritual gifts. The word gift is not there in the Greek. And so I've, I've translated this supernatural because I want you to understand exactly what Paul means by it. And that is what he means by it. Verse 7, he says, To each the manifestation of the Spirit is given 
for the common good. What he's saying there is a person baptized in the Holy Spirit will have a manifestation of a spiritual gift of some kind. Um, uh, you know, one of the nine supernatural gifts that he's about to list. And it means having an inclination towards a particular thing. Uh, some people may have a particular inclination to one of those nine supernatural gifts. For example, when I was a good little Presbyterian boy and I didn't believe in any of this Pentecostal stuff, I was praying with a friend named Paul Tasker and he started manifesting. I mean, it was just weird. 17 years later, we were in Townsville and he came to visit us and he sat at our kitchen table in Townsville. I remember it as clear as a bell and he sat there and he said to Joan and myself, he said, I don't know what you believe, people believe about all this supernatural stuff, but when Bruce prayed for me, a demon was cast out of me. Now, I was a good little Presbyterian. I didn't believe in that stuff. But it's a good job God does. <laughs> and it's a good job the Holy Spirit does. Because that day, Paul was delivered of, a, of, an, of, of an evil spirit, exactly like, what did he do? He sent them out to heal the sick, cast out demons. So I guess that's when I became Pentecostal. And it wasn't anything I did, it was what God did, and that's the whole thing about baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's what God does through us in particular circumstances and in particular situations, as long as we're available. What did he say? I forgot about that message. should preach that again sometime wouldn't work in India because a lot of my messages I can't use in India that don't work. I can't say avail, able, if you're able to be avail, avail, avail. Never mind. <laughs> Doesn't work in India because it's completely different language. And so, um, so uh, Paul goes on and lists nine supernatural gifts and finishes chapter 12 by telling us that not all of us have them. And we don't have all of the supernatural gift all of the time. See, uh, he says, do all do this, do all do that? No, and he even mentions some of the motivational gifts that we find in Romans chapter 12 that are not among the nine supernatural gifts. And then in verse 1231, the last verse, this is where I come to the last. So the first verse says, concerning supernatural gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. The last verse says, be zealous, zelute in the Greek, I've used the word zealous, which is not in most translations. It usually says something like be earnestly desirous or something like that. But the, the Greek word is zelute, zealous for the higher. And I believe he means the supernatural gifts now. But now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. That's the end of chapter 12. And then he starts chapter 13 with these words, though I speak with the tongues of men. Uh, by the way, if it were the tongues of men... That would be alos glossolei, you got it? And the tongues of angels, which would be heteros glossolei, heavenly language, right? Which is what is used on the day of Pentecost. Not what most people think, which is alos glossolei. No, it's heteros, it's heavenly language. And then he follows with this wonderful, uh, oh, or the, or the or, or, or men and of angels, but have not love. I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And then follows the wonderful passage on love, which I've used many times. When? At weddings. But it's out of context. Have you used that passage at weddings yet?
And I want to tell you this morning, let me be very clear to you, the most excellent way is not love. Not in this passage. It's the most, sadly, the most misquoted uh, in this whole thing about Pentecostalism and the Pentecostal church. And then he goes on towards the end and says, Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. I've heard people who are called, by the way, cessationists tell me, see there, they'll all fail, they'll all pass away. Again, it's out of context because look what it says. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. For now we see through a mirror dimly. Where's that? That's here on earth. Right? But then, face to face. See, when we get to heaven, now I know in part on earth that then I shall know just as I am also known. I remember my son Matthew once said, when I get to heaven, Dad, I'm going to have a chat with King David. There's a few things I want to find out about. And of course, now we know in part, but then face to face. So this whole passage is about heaven and what happens in heaven. Uh, well, we won't need prophecy in heaven, right? We'll all have the one language and we'll be able to communicate easily in heaven. There won't be diversities of tongues or anything like that and so on and so forth. And then he says, and now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, it's exactly the same thing. Will you need faith in heaven? No. Will you need hope in heaven? No. Will there be love in heaven? You better believe it. The, 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 the quality of love in heaven will be unsurpassing, everlasting, unchanging and unconditional love and you'll be bathed in it like you've never been bathed in it before because love is what will remain and that's what's in heaven and that's what's waiting for us. And now when we come to chapter 14 verse 1, we have the connection between chapter 13 and chapter 14. Paul says this, verse 1, pursue love or follow the way of love maybe in your translation, something like that, which is fine. So he's had the love passage. Previous to that he said, be zealous for the supernatural gifts. Now I'll show you the more excellent way uh, about love. And then he says, follow the love and, and he uses the same word again, say Luke, be zealous for supernatural gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Notice he doesn't say speak in tongues. He says prophesy. In all three, uh, this is not in my notes today, but I have a cir three circles diagram I've drawn uh, uh, of all the different gifts lists in scripture, the ministry gifts of Ephesians 4, the motivational gifts of Romans 12 and the, the nine supernatural gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 12 and the one that overlaps in all three is prophecy. Don't let someone tell you that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved because it's not in the Bible. Um, if you don't ever prophesy into someone's life, maybe you might want to say uh, you're not being an effective Christian. But, and then, of course, in chapter 14, by the way, as an aside, Paul defines prophecy as speaking to someone's life for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. You would be surprised how often you are prophesying, speaking into people's lives. It's, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, it's wonderful when Faileen comes and she prophesies over people and we have wonderful prophecies, 
That's fantastic. But we all prophesy. We're all called to prophesy. We're all called to speak into people's lives for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And Paul says, earnestly desire, be zealous for that. See? Be zealous for that. So follow the way of love and be zealous for speaking into people's lives for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And that, friends, is the more excellent way. Fruit and gifts working together. And so he finishes chapter 14 by saying this. This will rock you. I didn't realize this until I started looking at the Greek over the last week. Therefore, brethren, desire zealously. Same word again. Zelute. Zealously to speak in tongues, right? No. Zealously to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. By the way, Paul has already said in that chapter, he said, I speak in tongues more than any of you and I want you all to speak in tongues. So there's no question that God wants us all to have our heavenly language, heteros glossolei. Um, I remember talking to a bloke once that said, oh, no, no, no. I was talking about the fact that we are still in the era of the Spirit, and we are still in the apostolic age. He said, oh, no, 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 no. All that stuff finished when the, when the disciples, or the, he called them the apostles, died. I said, is that so? I said, so you never pray for someone who's sick? I said, mate, listen, you can't have some of it and not all of it. See? He also said to me, oh, you know, we got a tape recorder and we went and recorded somebody's, you know, this so-called tongues they have, and it didn't match any language on earth. I said, yeah, that's correct. That's absolutely right. Uh? Because it's heteros glossolei, see? Are you with me? I want you all to understand this, because this is in the Bible. Oh, by the way, I'm preaching from the Bible? Not from something I got online uh, or some bloke online because you can go online and you get the heap, greatest heap of garbage and trash, uh, trashing Pentecostalism. And when they trash Pentecostal, you know what they're doing? They're trashing the work of Christ is what they're doing. He healed the sick. And last time I read my Bible, he raised people from the dead, right? And I tell you what, if, if some of those people, actually I've jumped ahead of myself, but I'll say this now. If some of those people were, were there at Ephesus when Paul was there, they'd have wrote articles about him ad infinitum, right? And they'd have posted stuff online calling him a heretic because you know what people did? They went through the garbage to find his dirty used handkerchief to go around and get people healed. Can you imagine what would happen if somebody went through the office next door looking for Pastor Scott's old Kleenex tissues <laughs> so they could go and heal someone? Hey, oh, they'd be up online, they'd be writing articles all over the place. But it's in the Bible. Hashtag what? <laughs> Hashtag Kleenex heals. Praise God. So we're still in the year of the Spirit, absolutely. And we're still in the Pentecostal mode. And we're still in the apostolic age. You know, there were 12, 12 disciples. One of them fell, so they elected another one, Matthias, to take his place, right? And there were 12. And that was to fulfill leadership, the leadership model at the time, which is 12, 12 in a synagogue, 12 tribes and all the rest of it. Paul lays claim to be an apostle, right? Uh, so... That being the case, he might have been claimed to be the 13th. Correct? You with me? Numbers-wise. But that's not what he was claiming. 
Not at all. Apostle means anointed messenger. That's what it means. And Paul said, I'm one of them. Guess what, Joan and I, we're apostles with a small a. Because we're going to the other ends of the earth to take the message of salvation and, and teaching and healing to a bunch of wonderful young Indian men and women who desire to go out. Just like when Paul got into that uh, hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, if you read on. So he got in there and he taught for two years and then they went out, including um, a, a number of people who founded all those churches through Asia Minor, the seven churches. Paul was an apostle. But there were other apostles. This is the whole thing. I'm blessed if I know why people don't understand this. There were other apostles in the New Testament. Listen to this. Paul says in Romans 6, Greet Adronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners. What does that mean? They're in prison, probably were executed for their faith, who are a note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Right, girls, you ready? Junius was a woman. Yeah. I never heard anything. Junius was an apostle and a woman. Yes, good on you. The idea that Jesus, that the work of Jesus ceased when the 12 apostles died is just absolute nonsense. It has no basis in Scripture. And apart from any, it would render just about everything he did Null and void. See? The nine supernatural gifts have continued. Uh, they are with us, are here today. I know there are ex- uh, uh, some uh, excesses here and there, but that's not a reason to throw the whole thing out because it's unbiblical to. It's all about balance. And 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is about balance. And the balance between fruit and gifts is the most excellent way. That's what it is. Our fire analogy, which, we've, uh, which we have um, had for, well, all, all of the life of this church, fuel, heat, air. Fire needs fuel, heat, air, and that other thing, Justin, I'll get it in someday when I understand how it all fits. You need fuel, you need heat, you need air. As a Christian, a baptism of fire is we're fueled up, fired up, and filled up. Fueled up with the word of God to know enough. And Scotty, earlier this year when he preached on this, talked about some other parts of knowing who God is and so on and so forth. And then we are fired up with the fruit of the Spirit to care enough, you see. Fired up with the fruit of the Spirit to care enough. And then we are filled up with the gifts of the Spirit to do enough. Head, heart, hands. The mind, the emotions, the will. You know, when you come to faith, that's exactly how you come. You don't just come with your mind. You come with your mind, your emotions, and your will. That's how you come to faith. You get to the facts, and you think about what Jesus did on the cross for you, and it should move you to tears. In fact, uh, when we talk about repentance, uh, uh, we talk about, uh, first of all, conviction. Remember the DVD thing? And then we talk about confession, and then we talk about contrition. Contrition is godly sorrow. We need to weep over what we've done. There needs to be emotions in what we do when we come to faith. And then we act on it. We make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there are cautionary notes in all of this. First of all, in the area of the mind. Because there are parts of the church where they say, look, really all that matters is what you believe. 
Well, this problem was in the early church, I tell you. James said, listen, you show me your faith just by belief and I'll show you my faith by actions because even demons believe and tremble. Belief, folks, is not enough. And there are parts of the Christian church where, you know, they have Bible studies and all they do is just get it into here. But it's not just the head, it's also the heart. And emotions are part. Now, having said that about the mind, of course, we still need to be fueled up. Does anybody here today think they've got enough? Anybody here reckon they're fueled up enough with the Word of God? Anybody can recite the word backwards, frontwards, upside down, inside out? No, we all need to be fueled up more. But that's not the only thing. The balance of fruit and gifts and fire is, is to be fueled up, yes. Now, emotions. You know, there are groups of people out there that say, oh, these Pentecostals, they're all emotional. They're all froth and bubble. They're all fluffy. They're all experiential. Well, uh, we can be. And we need to be careful that we don't uh, allow that stuff to run away with us. But I tell you what, Jesus was emotional. Oh, yes. You know he danced, don't you? Cyril will give me the date. He'll work out the exact date. The last and greatest day of the feast. Where's Cyril? The last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus danced. Three o'clock in the afternoon on the 23rd of October, 29 AD. Who thinks that Jesus stood back there looking like a somber old priest while they all danced around? No, Jesus danced. Did he laugh? Well, there's no evidence that I can see, but I'm sure he did. When he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey... They were all crying out and cheering. Do you think Jesus was... No, he'd have been smiling and waving and enjoying the moment. And yet a moment later, he's weeping like a little baby. It says he sobbed, cried like a baby over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. And then he goes into the temple and he's throwing stuff all over the place. Now today, he'd have been tasered or capsicum sprayed and chained up and taken away. Jesus was emotional. Don't ever say Christians should not be emotional. That is just nonsense. At the same time, we need to be careful that we are fueled up with the word of God to know enough as well as baptized in the Holy Spirit to enjoy. And you know what it says in Romans 12 verse 1? Present your body, that means your whole being, as a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Friends, we need to learn how to dance before the Lord. We need to learn how to shout and enjoy. Why should we go to a football match to see people enjoying themselves worshipping football when we should worship the Lord? The Bible is full. You know, there's seven Hebrew words for praise and most of them have to do with really enjoying yourself in the presence of God. There's only one awesome, soft, quiet reverential one and that's called Barak the rest all have to do with lifting hands and praise and instruments all sorts of things and the last one of course is your will the use of supernatural gifts and of course we know don't we that Jesus spoke about this as a caution to us he said some people are going to say and uh, say look I prophesied in your name you know I cast out demons in your name and, and Jesus will say depart from me I didn't know you because by their fruit by their fruit, you will know them. This is all about balance, folks. The fire analogy helps us understand the balance of fruit and gifts, fueled up 
thee with the word of God to know enough, fired up with the fruit of the Spirit to care enough, and filled up with the gifts of the Spirit to do enough. And in all of those areas, I'm lacking. And I'd like to do better in them all. And I'm sure that's true for you too. But beware of those who come along judging and condemning what is the body of Christ as it was in the New Testament and is as it should be and it is now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign Lord of your church. It is your will that we know enough. It's your will that we care enough. It's your will that we do enough, fill with your Holy Spirit and use those gifts that you've given us. That's your will. That's the balance. And that, Father, I believe is the most excellent way. And we ask today as we come to the end of this service that you give us the power and the capacity to achieve that all the more in our house, in our church, in our families and in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.